All right. I don't even know why I've got this stand up here. Uh, because somewhere along the way I lost my notes, but that's okay. That just means it's going to go longer than normal, and we love it. What? Oh, oh that was really, that was sweet. Uh, we've been, a, we're starting this new series, uh, Who's Your One? And it essentially, uh, this question essentially assumes an answer to the question, and that is that, do you have a one? Well, you should have your one. Who's your one? It, it's kind of predicated on the idea that you ought to have a one, and if you don't have a one, you will get a one, uh, a one for whom you will pray consistently, a one to whom you will intentionally try to connect them with, a, with, with Jesus Christ, to bring them into a personal relationship with Jesus. So we're in this series, Who's Your One?, and I recognize that whenever the church gets to talking about evangelism, witnessing, declaring the gospel, uh, people get a little bit uncomfortable. Someone put it like this years ago, decades ago, people inside the church and people outside the church are uptight about the same thing, evangelism. And uh, the, the reason is when we do good things, when we're good neighbors and we're kind and advance justice and all the rest, that will win the applause of a watching world. Everybody likes that. But when we declare the gospel and implicitly communicate to the same world that's applauding us for doing good things, that uh, they're spiritually impoverished, enslaved to false gods, we don't get such a positive response. In other words, being good and kind and helpful and giving to charity and pushing forward an agenda of equality and all the rest, that's cool. But trying to convert people to a relationship with Jesus, that's not so cool. And so within the church, there have always been, this isn't anything new, this isn't new for you or new for me, within the church, there have always been a number of people who have asked themselves the question, can't I just be a good citizen of the world and help people and then leave the sharing of the faith, the declaration of the gospel to a few specialized people? And the answer to that question biblically is well, absolutely not. As, as a believer, at the core of who you are is this calling to make followers. If you're a follower, you help other people to become followers of Jesus. It just works that way. Jesus put it like this. If you're a disciple, if you're a follower, you're going to make other followers, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded. And so... We may want to back off from that core rule as a believer to help other people to become believers. But when we do that, when we put that core value off to the side, we also need to recognize you can't really do that. In Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, the, the question comes to us, listen, don't you know that if you're an athlete and you're running a race, if you're competing, you only get the crown if you compete according to the rules. So we all have different races, and I recognize this. Some of us maybe are gifted in one area or another. We have different dispositions or different callings. I get that. We all run different races in different ways, at different lengths, at different paces. We run in different ways. But whatever your particular race is, What's true for you and what's true for me is if at any point in the race of your life and in the race of my life, we're no longer racing so as to 
get the good news of Jesus into the lives of people or out into the world, we have gotten off track. And when you get off track, you need encouragement to get back on track. And so what we're doing in this series is trying to encourage in a practical way all of us to get back on track. And so this morning, so as to encourage, this is no, there's no condemnation here, just to encourage, what I want to do is to help us to think about how Jesus sees people who are not in relationship with him, people who are lost. And the reason we have to get back on track is because Jesus has a heart, a huge, huge, huge heart for people who are lost. And what we're going to do this morning is go to a passage that maybe you've heard before, but we just want to allow the passage, allow God through the passage to speak to us and help us to gain his eyes and his perspective on those who do not have a relationship with him. If you would, let's go ahead and stand together out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The text this morning is Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness, which, by the way, we believe there were about 200 towns and villages in Galilee, and and the text tells us he went around to all of them. Now, I don't know how all-ish all is here in this text, but it says he went to all the towns and all the villages, teaching and preaching and, and healing. So you have to recognize there's a lot of need that Jesus is addressing all the time. Not just the sickness, not just the disease, but all of the philosophical, theological questions that people had. Some of them were honest questions. Some of them were dishonest questions where they're trying to trap him. But there's tons of need that Jesus is dealing with. And he keeps on going from town to town, village to village. He is grinding it out hour after hour, day after day. What is it that keeps Jesus moving? What is he feeling that keeps him grinding We know what the answer is. The Bible tells us right here, it's compassion. Jesus continued. When he saw uh, the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is is abundant, uh, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out harvesters into workers out into his harvest. I wish we just stayed with the King James Version, just like Jesus used 2,000 years ago. At any rate, may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In this passage, Jesus basically helps us to feel what he's feeling and to see what he's seeing by giving us two agricultural metaphors, two agricultural word pictures. The first is a crisis of livestock, and then there's the crisis also of grain. And so you do get the impression that Jesus is kind of a country boy at heart because he's so agrarian in the metaphors that he uses here. First, Matthew tells us in verse 36 that when he saw all of the people, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep, harassed and helpless, dejected and distressed, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the job of the shepherd was to get the sheep from over here to over here. That's simple enough, but it was easier said than done because sheep don't have defense mechanisms. You know that virtually every, every animal in the animal kingdom, they've got defense mechanisms of some type. But sheep, all they can do is go, bah, 
That's it. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have sharp claws. They don't have shells. They don't have quills. They're not really fast. They're not good at hiding. They're not terribly clever. Uh, Sheep don't, you know, spray their predators to keep them at bay like a skunk or anything. All they do is just go, bah. So they need a shepherd. And uh, and if they don't have a shepherd, well, then they're going to get mauled or eaten by by wolves they're going to they're not going to make it on top of all this here's what we know about sheep they're very cute let's just admit this they're they're great pets in fact in some cultures they are preferred to dogs as pets and you would go back in the old testament you remember the whole story where Nathan comes to David and tells about this pet sheep this man has a pet sheep a little pet lamb and in some cultures, even to this day, sheep are preferred to dogs as pets because they're cute. They're, they're adorable. And so when you're a shepherd who is named the sheep and you see your sheep being attacked by wolves or drowning in a rising stream, you get distressed as they're distressed. Jesus says, that's how I see lost people. This is, this is distressing me. I, I don't want to see those that I love and have named and am shepherding eaten alive. And I'm seeing this, Jesus lets them know. I, this is how I see it. Then Jesus gives us another metaphor, another word picture, and it's the picture of the grain when he says, pray the, to the Lord to send out workers into the harvest field because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. When it comes to grain, there is a, a window of opportunity when the grain is, is ripe, but it's not overripe, and it's only in that window that the grain can be picked. And Jesus sees this and he sees, I don't have enough workers out there in the field. It's very distressing. Imagine that you are the owner of the, of the land. You're the master of the field. And all of this grain is ready to be picked, but it's about to rot and fall to the ground or locusts are going to come and eat it or, you know, a hailstorm is going to destroy the crop. This is not good because in a very real sense, grain is bread. I, I was visiting with Tom, I think it was just like a, last week or two weeks ago, uh, and uh, Tom was telling me about how his wife Sharon's dad was a baker, and he said, boy, did he make a lot of bread. And it's like, you know, double entendre. It, it feeds everybody, but it's also, you know, money in the pocket. It, it comes down to, this is my, my life is tied up in this. And to see the to see the crop about to fall apart, this is a year's labor that could go down the drain. This is valuable stuff to the person who owns the crop. Let me put it to you in a modern metaphor, maybe something that maybe you can understand a little bit better. Suppose some thief breaks into your bank account, steals a year of your salary, as if any of us is ever going to save a year of our salary. But suppose a thief takes all of your annual salary, because the harvest only came once a year, and then he converted all that money into cash, a big bag of cash. And then for some reason, because this person's sadistic, they take you out into the middle of a field and your hands are tied behind your back and it's a windy day. And they just take that bag of cash, all of your hard labor for the whole year, and they just dump it out on the ground and it just blows away. You know how you would feel to see all that luscious green just disappearing in the wind? It would make you sick to your stomach. And that's what the word compassion here means you you go back to it literally it has to do with the churning of the of the bowels of the stomach and of the intestines because it just you just get that queasy gut-wrenching feeling when you see 
your sheep that you've named being mauled or when you see the grain falling to the ground and rotting and blowing away in the wind. Jesus lets us know, this is, this is how I see people who are lost. Now, I'm not giving too much away in, in telling you about what's uh, coming here. You know, John Lane is going to be sharing a testimony with us. And when I heard the testimony very recently, I thought to myself, I don't know how many people looked at John when he was a child in trouble or when he was a teenager running with the wrong crowd or when he was incarcerated. I don't know how many people really looked at him as just an adorable sheep who needs a shepherd or as precious grain that just needs to be picked. I don't know how many people looked at John in his past before Christ as someone who is precious and valuable and cherished and adored. Probably not many people other than Jesus. There may have even been some people who saw John and thought, well, they'd be fine with me if he just rotted and fell to the ground and blew away. Whenever we do not see the lost as cherished and beloved and, and adored and priceless, we are not seeing things like Jesus sees things. We're not seeing people as Jesus sees people. And I'm just so thankful to the Lord that he gives us an opportunity to repent, to change our minds, to change our thinking, to change the direction of our lives. I'm so grateful that Jesus sees people people the way he does and he also sees people in terms of what it is that he can do with them and i'm just grateful that he gives us these opportunities to reorient our thinking to reorient our lives to reorient our vision so that our vision matches with his because while he is the head of the church he's also the heart of the church and if our heart is not beating in keeping with his heart then something has really gone wrong this morning, I also want to tell you I thank God that I was able to, to meet John and to hear his story. And I'm thankful, John, for your willingness to come and share with us. So come on up here. I, I also would ask that you would give John a warm round of applause as uh, he comes to share his story with us. If you need this, go ahead. All right. Thank you, Pastor. I appreciate that. Yes, my name is John Lane. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. And I, I remember reading in the book of God's Word in uh, uh, over in Genesis and everything where Moses spent 40 years on the backside of a desert. I spent 40 years in prison wishing I was on that backside of the desert with him. And so I remember back on, uh, it was uh, 1987, September, and I was standing before uh, Judge Bob Jones in a Travis County District Court. And the jury had just found me guilty of robbery for being accessory to a robbery as a getaway driver. So I'm waiting for this judge now to sentence me. So I remember looking at his face. I got this like sneer, scowl on my face, and I'm just looking at him. And then he read off the sentence. He says, I hereby sentence you to life in prison in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And when he said those words, I remember something like died inside of me. That sneer on my face just fell off. I remember my knees. I kind of got weak. I just wanted to fall to the ground. And I remember they led me out of that courthouse. And I went back upstairs to my cell. And I thought, life sentence. Man, that's a long time. And I remember looking out over South Austin through all that uh, 
uh, through the bars and the windows and everything. And I was trying to ingrain that in my mind because I thought I may never see the free world ever again. So growing up, I was raised in a household where love was never shown. I grew up in a little uh, four-room cedar shack there right outside of Mount uh, St. Helen in the state of Washington. And when I say a shack, it was literally a shack. We didn't have running water. We had an outhouse. We didn't have electricity. So I grew up in this environment. My dad was very angry at the world. And he would always take his anger out on my mom. He had always beaten up my mom. And I was a mama's boy, so I was always running to the defense of my mother. And I would get beat up. So this went on for years. I had my eyes blackened, my nose broke, my jaw broke, my arms broke. I'd go to school and the kids would tease me because I'm in these old worn out, patched up clothes. And I would fight the kids at school. And I had nobody around me. No one to share my life with, no friends. So I just grew up lonely, abused. And after 14 years of this, I ran away from home. And when I ran away, I got picked up by this busload of hippies, and they dropped me off at a truck stop, their Pro-Am 2 truck stop in Catoosa, Oklahoma. So I go in this truck stop with nothing but the clothes on my back and a little bit of change in my pocket. I remember getting a cup of coffee, and the head waitress come over there, and she said, shouldn't you be uh, asleep? Because you got school tomorrow. And I said, no, I'm not going to school. I need a job. And I broke down and told her what had happened. She said, well, the owner of this truck stopped looking for a dishwasher. So he came in shortly thereafter. We talked. And he asked me my age. I lied and said I was 16. And, of course, I didn't look nowhere near 16. But he was desperate for help. So he gave me a job. So here I got a job washing dishes and pans for 90 cents an hour from 6 in the morning Till six at night, seven days a week. After a month or so of this, I went on the other side of the truck stop where they took care of the trucks. And so from six o'clock in the evening till 11 o'clock at night, I helped wash trucks, change trucks, uh, tires. So here I am, 14, just turned 15. I'm working from six in the morning till 11 o'clock at night, seven days a week. I did this for 15 months. I left the truck stop. I ended up in, uh, Modesto, California. There down the street from me were some bikers, some uh, these long-haired bikers. And I went down there one day and started hanging around. And for once, nobody was calling me stupid. For once, nobody beating me up. And they seemed to accept me. The next thing I know, I'm hanging around these bikers more and more. Then they started offering me beer to drink. Up until this time, I've never drank a beer in my life, never did drugs or anything like this. But because I was wanting to be loved and accepted, I started drinking that beer with them. That beer graduated to bourbon. I started drinking Jack Daniels. That graduated to weed. I started smoking weed, and that graduated to hardcore drugs. And so when you get around people and you want to be accepted, you do what they do. And you let peer pressure take you someplace that you really don't want to go, but you don't know how to say no So I got caught up in the biker lifestyle. At 17 years old, I was the youngest full-fledged member of the Sons of Satan. At 19, I was the national lieutenant and bodyguard of the vice president, Carl Bogus. At 20 years old, I was sitting in a penitentiary on the East Ham unit, more commonly known by the guards and the inmate as the House of Pain, 
just been given a life sentence. But previously to that, I'd got put in prison from 1974. I went to prison there on the East Ham unit. And I stayed till 1985. Well, when I got out of prison after spending 11 years, I swore I'd never go back to prison ever again. I wasn't going to do no more drugs. I wasn't going to drink. I wasn't going to do none of that craziness to ever get back in prison. But the very day I got out of prison, I was back using drugs. I was back hanging around the wrong people. Because, see, I didn't have nobody to uh, mentor me or tell me about Jesus. I got plugged into the things of the world the very first day I walked out of prison. And so the thing of it is, if you don't get plugged in to the things of God, when you get out of prison, you get plugged into the things of the world. And Satan will take you someplace you don't want to go. He'll keep you there far longer than you ever dreamed possible. And it'll cost you more than you ever imagined. So here I did. I got out of prison after doing 11 years. And in 1987, I'm right back in the same prison I swore I'd never go back to. Now I've got a life sentence. A life sentence. So when I got back into prison, I was just full of rage. I was full of anger. I was mad at the world. I blamed everybody for my situation. I blamed the courts. I blamed my court-appointed lawyer. I blamed the district attorney, the sheriff's department. I blamed my parents. I blamed everybody except John Lane, the one who is rightfully responsible for his actions. See, nobody made me do anything. I'd done it willingly. And so I was caught up in the blame game. I get in prison after three years being back in prison. I'm drinking that homemade hooch in prison, getting drunk, fighting all the time. So I got into a fight with a prison guard. And next thing I know, they they handcuffed me. They put me in solitary confinement. I'm sitting in this cell, a strip cell. All I'm wearing is just these uh, boxers. And I started looking around the cell. It's nasty. It's filthy. I thought if you put an animal in this cell, people would scream bloody murder uh, about a dog being in a cell like this. But because I'm a human being, it didn't matter. And I started taking a look at my life and I thought, man, my whole life has been wasted. I'm 33 years old on a brand new life sentence, may never get out of prison. I said, you know what? I don't want no more of this. So I started looking around the sail, around underneath the uh, angle iron and everything, seeing if I could find a razor blade. Because if I could find a razor blade, I knew I could just cut out my jugglers, bleed out, and not wake up in prison no more. I'd be free. So I said, man, I'm down on the floor looking for a razor blade. And in every cell you go in prison, you can find a razor blade. This cell, there was not one razor blade in that cell. And then I found up on the on the chops on the top shelf there of the sale there was a book, and usually in prison you're always looking for a western to read, especially Louis Lamar. So I get this book down, and it was a religious book of all books. I said, "Man, I can't find a razor blade. I I can't get a western to read. Got this old religious book. I threw it across the sale, and I started doing push-ups until I was exhausted. But something was drawing me back to that book." And I went over there and I picked it up and I turned to the very first page. And it was about a man who was doing a life sentence just like me. And like me, this man had got convicted of robbery. He was in uh, Georgia State Prison and I'm in uh, Texas. 
So I'm starting to be drawn into this book. I'm reading it. It was called Twice Pardoned by Harold Morris. Up until this time, remember, I never been to church in my life. As I grew up, we never had a Bible in our house. Only time I ever heard God, the word God used was in the form of profanity. So I knew nothing about religion. I knew nothing about Jesus Christ. Only thing I knew about God is a movie I saw one time, The Ten Commandments with uh, Charleston Heston. So that was it. That was my full, uh, complete knowledge of God. So I'm starting reading this book and I see this guy is praising God for him being in prison. He's talking about having peace. In the midst of all this chaos and turmoil. And I thought, this guy has got to be thrown off. You're in prison and you're thanking God? And what's up with that? So I finished reading the book. And as I finished it, the light was just coming in through the the window outside. And the window was so full of dirt and dust. You got a screen on it, mesh, bars, and all this stuff. And usually the light would never shine in through the window. But yet there was like a beam of light coming right into my cell. And I looked down and my shorts are wet. I'd been crying. And I didn't even realize tears were coming from my eyes. Because the last time I cried was was when I was a little child. In fact, I think it was about, I was nine years old or so, maybe ten. My dad beat me unconscious trying to make me cry. I refused to cry. From that day forth, I'd never cried again and would never cry. And I remember those tears falling on my shorts. It's the first time I'd cried since I'd been a child. And I remember I just looked up and I just said, God, I don't even know if you're real or not. I don't know. But if you are, just give me some peace in life, man. Just give me some peace. That's all I was wanting. And so I found that peace. And I remember I asked the chaplain if he would give me a Bible. And he bought me a little Gideon's Bible up there. And he said, turn to John 1, 6, and they talk about you in the Bible. So I opened it up, and I found that scripture, and it said there was a man sent from God whose name was John. I thought, man, how'd they know about me? And I didn't know it was about John the Baptist until I started reading it. But after that was November 17, 1990, when I called out to God. And approximately 30 days later, they took me before what they called the unit classification committee to see if they're going to let me out of lockup back in the general population. So I go before the warden. He tells me, he said, Lane, he said, you're incorrigible. You're impervious to rehabilitation. I'm going to put you in a cell and you're going to stay there until you die. He said, I'm going to send you to ad seg is which, which solitary confinement is called. He said, I'm going to send you to Ad Seg and you'll stay there. You'll never get out again. And so instead of getting out back to general population, I'm put into a cell where I'm by myself, a five by nine cell for eight years. Eight years in that cell just with me. Your bathroom was a lot bigger than my cell. For eight years, I lived in that cell and I read God's word from cover to cover 17 times. Old and New Testament. And I must have read John and all the uh, various gospels and everything probably hundreds of times in in that eight years. And I understood that it was only through a relationship with God's word 
that we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ because it was through reading that word that I came to understand who Jesus truly was and why he came. <coughs> Excuse me. So eight years later, they bought me before a state classification board and the same warden that put me in prison was now a regional director. And they bring me out before him. I'm handcuffed behind my back. I got shackles on my feet. And I go out there and he starts talking to me. And he says, you know, Lane, he says, you don't look the same. You don't talk the same and you don't act the same. I used to have a filthy mouth. Profanity just flowed from my mouth. But when I called out to God that night, November 17, 1990, God took away that filthy mouth. From that day forth, I never cussed again. And he took the desire for drugs and alcohol away from me. So that warden, he says, he says, you're different. He said, you know what? I'm going to recommend that they release you back to population. So I get back out in population. I, I met this older Christian guy, Gerald Pike. And he said something that was so profound to me. See, I came to prison with an eighth grade education. I thought I knew everything. You couldn't tell me nothing. And so he said, look, John, you don't need to be embarrassed if you're stupid. He said, but you need to be ashamed if you remain that way. Go get your GED. And I said, man, I can't get no GED. He said, why not? And I start thinking, why not? All my life, people told me I was stupid, I was dumb, I never amount to nothing. The guards tell you that every day. So I went and took the GED test, passed it. About this time, I came up for parole. So I came up for parole, uh, 2002, got a two-year set off. I went and got an associate in religious studies. I came up for parole again. They gave me another set off. I went and got a bachelor in ministry. And every every time I got a set off, people were watching me. They were going to see if I'm going to throw that Bible down. See if John Lane's going to go back to the old John Lane. But I swore to God when I got often reading his word and everything. I remember I was trying to act like a, a secret service Christian. And when the guys would come around or something like that, the guys I knew from years ago, I try to like blend in with them. And then when the Christians come around, I kind of blend in with them. And I remember reading God's words, if you deny me before me and I'll deny you before my father, which art in heaven. I said, never again will I ever act a hypocrite and act and, and be a secret service Christian. So I just gave my heart totally to God. So during those set offs, when I got that, you know, two year set off, people are waiting for me to give up on God. I never did. It just pushed me into a deeper relationship with him. So when I went up on my next set off, I got another set off. I got a master in theology. So I come back up for a uh, parole again, another set off. I went and got a PhD in uh, religious philosophy with application in theology. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I hope they uh, give me parole soon. I'm running out of degrees to get. And so I come up again. They gave me another set off. I went and got a two-year paralegal degree. Then at this time, I came up again, and they gave me a one-year set off instead of the two-year set offs like they'd been giving me. So during that one year, I went and got a one-year advanced degree in criminal law. So now it's 2014, September. I came up for parole again, and yes, I got another set off. The pro board member out of the Amarillo board office, Charles Shipman, continually gave me set-offs. But what he didn't know, God was in control. And so an attorney that I led to the Lord, Michael Easton, back in 1990, 
was very good friends with the governor, with Governor Perry. So Governor Perry called him up and said, look, I need you to work on my case because he got sideways with an assistant DA who got a DWI or something up here in Travis County. So Governor Perry wanted Michael Easton to handle that case, and Michael Easton handled it, and he won. But anyway, Michael Easton told the governor, he says, look, uh, this is going to cost you. And the governor said, you're going to charge me, the governor? He said, yeah, you put your pants on like I do, one leg at a time. He said, well, what is it going to cost? He said, I got a friend on the all-red unit who's got left behind. Put him in the IFI program. That was the Interchange Freedom Initiative program, an 18-month Christ program that the pro board, only they could put you in it, you know. And to get into this program, they had to give you pro. So the governor said, consider it done. So the governor's aide calls up the Amarillo board office, and guess who he gets on the phone? None other than Charles Shipman, the one who just gave me a set-off and gave me numerous set-offs. He said, Governor Perry would appreciate it if you had put John Lane 503730 in the IFI program. He said, consider it done. So I just got a set-off in September, October 14th. I got an FI-18 and sent to the IFI program. I get down there. I get uh, made clerk, and I learned computer skills and everything. So I get out of prison July twenty second, 2016. I come to Georgetown. A week after getting out of prison, I went down to Goodwill, got a job there, $9 an hour. I'd been out a couple months. I went down the street to Jiffy Lube, right down Williams Drive, got two jobs. Now, another job, $9 an hour. For 29 years in prison, I never earned a dime working. They don't pay you in prison. So I was thankful that I had two jobs. I felt blessed to be able to have a paycheck. And I remember the first time I ever walked into a free world church was Crestview Baptist Church. I walked in and Phil May, the choir director, was singing a song like he was singing it right to Jesus himself. And I felt like my eyes just tear up the joy that I felt in my heart. Because for all my life, up I was like 63 years old at that time. I'd never been in a free world church. I'd only, only services I ever attend was in prison. So here, Pastor Dan, he has all these children gathered around him. And he's giving him these little grapes because we're doing communion. And I was just so touched and just so overwhelmed with gratitude to be in God's house and knowing that this is what the house I need to be in. And I started attending Crestview, got baptized, became a member of Crestview Baptist Church. And so shortly thereafter, I was in Sunday school and there was a lady there named Sharon Brooks who I thought mistakenly was married to the pastor. Well, Pastor Dan is actually married to Shannon, but I thought Sharon, who was the uh, secretary at Crestview Baptist Church, was married to Dan. So the lady of our class, Audrey, she says, why don't you ever ask Sharon out? I said, man, ask Sharon out. I'm not going to step on the pastor's toes. That's his wife. I thought, what's wrong with this lady? We're in a Bible study, and you're asking me to take the... Asked the pastor's wife out. She said, no, Pastor Dan's not married to Sharon. He's married to Shannon. I said, you don't say. So I hurry up and bust a move. Let's say, me and Sharon, we started going out with each other. We got married April 27th on uh, 2019. So I end up marrying the Crestview Baptist, uh, the Crestview Angel at, uh, 
at Crestview Baptist Church. But after I got out in 2017, Attorney Mark Morales heard my testimony and I partnered up with him. So here, Attorney Mark Morales, a former district attorney, I'm now working for him, been working for him now for since 2017. And God has blessed my life beyond anything I could imagine. And I found this out. See, when I first dedicated my life to the Lord in, in, on November 17, 1990, I spent 26 years in prison before I was released. 26 years. God didn't just open the door up and left, let me go. Cause he knew, he knew that I needed a lot of work. And so he was busy transforming me. While I was in prison, I lost every one of my family members. My mom died. My dad died. My wife died. My sister died. My two brothers died. Everybody in my family had died while I was in prison. I had no one except Jesus, and he was enough. That's all I needed. He was enough. So I got out here, and I look at my life now, and I think, it is so much better than anything I could have ever imagined in prison. In prison, all you want to do is just be free. But you, the sun sets free, is free indeed. It's a freedom that cannot be expressed with mere words. So I want to leave you with this one thing today. Remember this, the importance of your testimony. Not mine, yours. Each man and woman in this room has a testimony. A testimony that will touch hearts. A testimony that will change lives. Go out there and tell people what Jesus done for you. And watch all the people that are being impacted by your testimony. So I just want to leave that with you today. Share your testimony with someone. And watch what God will do with that testimony. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. I appreciate you letting me talk to the people today. God bless you, brother. Amen. I I told y'all you wouldn't forget that. Eight years in solitary confinement. I couldn't be in that room for eight minutes. Just uh, what a what a great testimony to the grace of God and the ability of God to transform a life. You know we're we're in this series and really kind of an emphasis of who's your one on your tables. You'll you'll see these little markers. It's just who's your one. There's devotional readings that would go with this. And I know some of you rightly will be thinking, yeah, 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 okay, so I need to have my one. And But, you know, John Wayne, he's a Green Beret for Jesus. I mean, he's been through it. He's starting a ministry for really a church for prisoners and those who are incarcerated and working toward that. And he prays with people on a daily basis who are kind of in a very needy or open spot and I'm just me, and I've not really been in that whole evangelism thing. I kind of feel like I need to, but I'm not so sure. Listen, I don't want you to leave here thinking that you have to go from zero to 60 in 3.9 seconds or that God can only take you if you're willing to immediately be the green beret. What I mean is if you say, I don't know who my one is, I don't even know that I want a one, but I know that I want to 
want a one, but I don't even want a one. Listen, I, I get it. Jesus, the good shepherd, will take you from where you are to where you need to be. And he's patient. He's also very concerned and he has a sense of urgency about the grain that's rotting and falling to the ground. He has a sense of urgency when he sees the sheep that need a shepherd. Uh, But he also recognizes where you are and will take you to where you need to be. And we see this actually in the scripture with regards to the disciples. Because after Jesus says, here's how I see everybody. I see the grain rotting. I see the sheep under attack. And then he tells the disciples, "Not hey, get out there and get it done. You know what he says? He just says, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that will send out workers into his harvest field. He doesn't even just commission them immediately. He doesn't put a guilt trip on them. He doesn't say, okay, now go get her done. He he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray. Do you think you can start there? Say, I'm not even going to find, I'm not even, you know, Ernest, just to tell you the truth, I know I'm not going to go out of here and start witnessing the one. Can you pray for one person? You think you could do that? Now, if you think you can do that, I I think you can too. But here's where Jesus will take you. He will take you from praying for the one to being the one sent to the one. He'll take you from praying for the Lord to send out workers into the harvest to you being a worker. I'm just going to tell you what's happening. I'm not going to manipulate anything. You start praying and God will do a work on you. You see that at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is calling them disciples. And then you get to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Guess what happens? He calls them apostles, not just learners, but those who are sent. And then he actually sends them. But Jesus doesn't send them until after they've prayed for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Some of you, I, I don't know exactly where you're coming from, but if, you're, if you are an average or even an above average church member, likely you've never really taken all that seriously trying to reach other people for Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to lift a burden or whatever. I'm just saying your average person has never even attempted to share the gospel with someone outside of the church. It doesn't need to stay that way. You can pray. Start where Jesus starts with the disciples. Pray. Pray for the one. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in the harvest field. And then guess what happens? Awakening. Revival. Because I I can tell you this. You start praying to Jesus about the lost and for the lost, especially if there are some people that mean something to you. And and eventually, and, and I don't know how long it takes, two days, two weeks, two months, but eventually when you're praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field, your heart starts beating like Christ's. And then you're not witnessing out of obligation. Then you're sharing the good news out of a sense of love and compassion that is entirely appropriate because these people that you know who do not have Jesus, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They are like grain that needs to be harvested. They are cherished. They are beloved. They're adored. And at a certain point, you just can't help but do what it is that Christ would have you to do. So if you don't have your one, okay, pray for one. 
if you don't even know that you want to witness to the one, can we start here? Can you just pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest? Can you at least pray for your one? And here's what happens when we start with prayer. Traditionally, we know this from the history of revivals and spiritual awakenings across the globe and in America, when people start praying, revival happens, awakening happens. So at the very least, dedicate yourself to prayer. Can you do that? Now, anybody here say, you know what? I just, I don't feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me to pray for anybody who's lost. Anybody want to say that, really? I just don't think that I can do that, pray for lost people. I don't think I can do what Jesus told me to do, to pray for the Lord to send out workers in the harvest field. You know you can do this. You know you can start there. Well, then start there. And if you're here this morning watching or you're here present physically and you just know, you know, I never really thought that God loved me like this. Well, I'm telling you, he does. And Jesus Christ is desperate, desperate, desperate for you to come to him as your good shepherd. He is desperate for you to know just how much you're deeply loved and treasured and adored. And if this morning you want to reach a point in your life or maybe God has brought you to a point in your life like John, you just say, you know, I, uh, I'm at the end of my rope. And I know I don't have to be. I know that, that I don't have to reach up to God as much as God has been reaching down to me all this time. And he's been pursuing me. And I'm tired of running. I'm tired of running from the lover of my soul. I'm tired of turning my back on the God who did not turn his back on me. If that's where you are this morning, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's very simple. With every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's, let's just bow our heads. If you're at this point where you'd say no. No, no, I'm not, I'm not running from God anymore. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not turning my back on him anymore. I'm going to turn around and turn to him and trust him. If that's you and you just want to come to that turning point, you just say to God, God, I know that I've sinned. I know I've done wrong. That's kind of obvious. But I also know that there is forgiveness available to me. I, I don't understand why you love me like you do. But I know the message of the Bible is you do love me. And the message of Jesus is you love me enough to send your son to die on a cross so that I could be forgiven. And not just forgiven, but embraced. Not just embraced, but, but embraced for all eternity. That you, God, would come right into my life and that you want a relationship with me. Not just that you're forgiven, you go on your own way, but you want to have a, an abiding, ongoing, personal relationship with me for the rest of my life and on into eternity. God, I don't understand that level of love, but I know that you love me like that, and I also know you made a way for me to have a relationship with you, and that's through Jesus. And so, God, I know that I've sinned, but I turn from my sin and my selfishness, and I trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone and what he's done for me. God, I, I don't really know what it means yet to be in a relationship with you, but I just say, yes, Lord, I want that relationship. Yes, I trust in Christ as my Savior and Lord, and I'm, look, I'm looking forward to growing in that relationship with you. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me enough to do something about my sins. Thank you for being my God. In Christ's name, amen.